Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. As the 2022 Winter Olympics kicked off last Friday in Beijing, a high-profile meeting took place on the sidelines between Russian President Vladimir Putin and Chinese leader Xi Jinping. The meeting was the 38th meeting, I believe, between the two leaders, but this one was especially weighty. Uh, It came at a critical time with Russia's ongoing military buildup near its border with Ukraine, and Putin likely wanted to gauge the extent of support he has from Xi, now Putin's most important partner. Following the meeting, Putin and Xi released a joint statement emphasizing their shared grievances with respect to the U.S.-led world order, condemning NATO enlargement, as well as lengthy or as well as alleged attempts by outside forces to interfere in their internal affairs. Um, Despite the show of solidarity, however, questions do remain about how far China will be willing to go to back Moscow, especially uh, in the event of a more um, overt invasion scenario. So to help us make sense of these complex and very important questions, we're pleased today to welcome Dave Schulman and Sasha Gabuyev to the podcast. Welcome, Dave and Sasha. Hi, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Quick background, Um, Sasha is Senior Fellow and the Chair of the Russia in the Asia Pacific Program at Carnegie Moscow Center. His research is focused on Russia's policy towards East and Southeast Asia, political and ideological trends in China and China's relations with its neighbors. And Dave is Senior Director of the Global China Hub at the Atlantic Council, where he leads the council's work on China. Dave's research focuses on China's foreign policy and grand strategy, U.S.-China relations, China-Russia relations, and the implications of China's rise for global order and the future of democracy. So can't think of two better positioned people for this conversation. Um, It's great to have you both. Okay, so maybe we'll just start, you know, by laying some groundwork. Um, And Sasha, we can start with you. You know, what did you think of the meeting? Um, Kind of give us a little context in which the meeting took place, its significance, kind of begin the story wherever you you think uh, it most helpful for Brussels Sprouts listeners. Um, I think that the significance comes from the fact that uh, everybody knows how painful the pandemic is for normal human beings and uh, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin are normal human beings too. personal contacts are disrupted by video screens. And uh, even if you talk through secure communication lines between Junanhai and the Kremlin, a lot of stuff cannot be discussed the way it can be discussed in person. Uh, Both men have not seen each other since November, 2019. Uh, They had a couple of phone calls and summits uh, on video links during the pandemic. But here, I think that the first in-person meeting is meaningful and important. And that also comes at a critical juncture in Russia's relations with the West. Uh, Yet another following 2014 annexation of Crimea and uh, participation in war in Eastern Ukraine. uh, And at a very different spot in US-China relations. So both men, had a lot to talk about. Uh, I think that uh, we know only the results, the statement, the lineup of documents, but uh, judging by the comments made by Russian and to a little extent by the Chinese officials, we know that much more has been discussed, including uh, how do we hedge our trade and investment from 
the U.S. financial system in case of the sanctions. Uh, probably chips and semiconductors. So ways to mitigate effects of uh, the sanctions that Biden administration is threatening to impose on Russia if it invades Ukraine. Uh, so that has most likely been discussed. Uh, we know that some has been discussed, but we don't know the context uh, of the discussion and uh, what's been said. So uh, it's interesting. I don't get hyperventilation over the content of the statement or the significance of the contracts being signed. But I think that the fact that the two guys meet after two years break at a very crucial time is important in itself and deserves our attention. Dave, do you want to rewind us just a little bit um, and talk about you know where the state of the relationship is now? So 2014 was obviously an important kind of accelerant of Russia-China relations as Russia likely judged that it didn't have many opportunities in the West um, in the wake of its illegal annexation of Crimea. So that was an important accelerant. Can maybe you talk a little bit about how the relationship is even different now than it was in 2014 and 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 where we are? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think um, you know you can go back to the end of the Cold War. You can go back to 2001 when when China and Russia signed their kind of uh, cooperation agreement. But but as you point out, 2014 was a really big um, change in in the relationship with. The annexation of Crimea and Russia, um, as a result, uh, in large part because of Western sanctions, becoming more reliant on China. Uh, China at that time not uh, coming out strongly in any way uh, in the, in uh, support of Russia's actions. Um, you know, uh, abstaining on UN measures, not coming up verbally supporting uh, the annexation, and actually, you know, not um, giving any leeway to, to Chinese companies to violate the sanctions uh, that were put on. Um, but you did see starting from there a real building of the relationship in, in a bunch of different areas. Um, and of course, the, the primary cause of that being a perception that, you know, U.S. hegemony and U.S. pressure was something that they shared and they both needed to collectively fight back against. And so the, you know, the, the main areas, you can look at any number of areas where the relationship has deepened. Um, I think in our work, Andrea, we've tended to look at specifically in the in the military and defense domain, where you've seen a real step up in terms of um the complexity, the geographic scope, um, the jointness uh, of the military exercises that, that that China and Russia have undertaken, um, and also just generally, you know, seeming to coordinate more at, at different levels um, on on issues around uh, common defense in ways that are, you know, could complicate things in the future for for the United States and for our allies. Um, and then the other domain would be in the kind of democracy um, and and rights norm, uh, rights and norms and international order domain, in the sense that uh, you've seen China and Russia much more um, forcefully, either either together or more likely in parallel, kind of pushing back against uh, the the liberal norms that underpin the global order, pushing back on uh, human rights protections uh, in multilateral organizations, um, and also undermining, um, you know, de democracy and, and accountability and transparency in, in a lot of countries around the world. So I'd say that's where the relationship has deepened a lot. I would, uh, just to come back to what um, Sasha was saying, I just want to add, I think, I agree. I think that this, you know, for those of us who've been watching this relationship for a long time, the joint statement, there's not some of these things are things we've seen for a long time and just kind of put down now on paper. But I do think it's important to recognize where how far we've come in the relationship and looking at the kind of language that's in there, 
uh, not just about the immediate issues of the day around, you know, China actually saying they oppose NATO expansion. That's that's a, a fairly big deal uh, to put that down. Uh, some of the things in there about opposition to unilateral sanctions and the use of export controls, which is obviously a reference to what the West might do um, if Russia were to invade. Um, and then some of the language around uh, common approaches on Asia. Um, these are all really significant. And also, you know, even the kind of some people have called it fluff at the beginning of that statement about joint opposition to democracy uh, and the fact that China and Russia have their own version of democracy that's just as valid. Um, that is, I don't think that's to be as easily as dismissed as some people uh, um, are doing. So I think, um, you know, we have come a really long way. And this um, this statement and this meeting really is a cap on on the fact that we've seen so much deepening of this relationship in the last six years. Seven years. No, Jim wants to get a question in, but one really quick because it's directly related. So Dave talked about some of the things that were in the statement. The other, so obviously mentioning NATO and NATO enlargement, I think was a little was it was a bit different. But Sasha, this also the fact that the statement gets at this idea about indivisible security, which has obviously been something that's been at the heart of in the back and forth between Russia, uh, the United States, and the, all the OSCE and NATO member states. Um, was that surprising to you to see in the statement? And you know, I mean, I guess my, do we, is there more kind of rhetorical support now than in, in 2014? And does that mean anything to you? Or do you think it's really just kind of rhetorical support? Maybe pick up on what Dave said. I guess I'm getting at, there were a couple of new things in the statement and that the fact that the Chinese were willing to sign on some of these things that Moscow was get you know able to get Beijing to talk about this idea of indivisibility of security in particular that I found really interesting. I agree with Dev that the big news in the statement is unequivocal support for Russia's position on NATO expansion. That's really new. We haven't heard uh, China, particularly on Xi Jinping's level, talking that way uh, and putting that on paper. Uh, everything else, I think that uh, we had opposition to AUKUS and Quad uh, voiced in the readout of December 15 uh, video summit. So it's it's something that's very logical, where Russia also has something at stake, uh, particularly with AUKUS, less than China, obviously, but hey, Russia has presence uh, in the Asia Pacific or Indo Pacific, uh, and definitely Australian nuclear subs would be a challenge that Russian force planner will have to take into consideration. But the NATO issue is something far away from China, or at least that seems so a uh, couple of years back. And I think that putting that on paper is something. Uh, really new. Uh, it's interesting that it looks like uh, China probably has voiced more support to issues of no direct concern to China than the other way around. Uh, but I wouldn't try too much into that. It's significant, but if, God forbid, tanks will roll over the border between Russia and Ukraine, uh, I think that we will see a very similar position to uh, China's reaction to Crimean annexation. There will be respect for UN Charter and uh, territorial integrity of Ukraine, but yes, a very specific case and peaceful negotiations, like all of the terminology and probably uh, I don't expect China voting the same way Russia will vote on this issue in the UN Security Council. Definitely not supporting, maybe abstaining. Uh, but um, 
disagreeing with Dave a little bit. Uh, I think that on uh, Ukrainian sanctions, going back to the wake of 2014-2015, these very naive, rosy expectations of the Russian business community and the official dump that, oh, now we turn our back to the West, show middle fingers to the Americans because we have our new great friend China. Uh, Of course, didn't materialize. But then China did something targeted and very material, material to show Russia that it can help to circumvent or minimize the effect of sanctions. And then on Crimea, the underwater sea cable that was providing electricity to bypass the effects of the uh, energy blockade that the Kiev government imposed on the peninsula, that was a tiny little bit, but that's important. And there are tiny little bits around the sanctions that are important for particular companies or particular uh, individuals. Uh, my theory of the case, talking to uh, some Chinese colleagues long before when it was still possible to have normal conversations, uh, was that uh, China was both securing its interests and in going after good deals and also buying itself influence in and around Kremlin, targeting to key people who have been sanctioned, like Gennady Timchenko and others, uh, in order to have influencers inside the Russian government who would be having favorable views of China. Yeah, just to, I mean, I, I don't think we disagree. I agree with that. I think the the point I was making is that, that there was a, a certain level of increased dependence uh, that Russia had on China as a result, as I'm sure we all agree, after the sanctions in 2014. Um, and so, yes, there were some things that China did around the margins that certainly, you know, helped Russia. But I think on large, you know, for those who might have expected it to be a massive, um, you know, that, as you said, the Russians could just kind of give the finger to the West and rely on China. That simply was not the case. And I don't think it'll be the case this time either. But it certainly wasn't the case last time. And as as we know, you know, China actually used uh, Russian dependence to actually drive a, a hard bargain on on, on energy deals. I agree with you, and I don't expect this uh, to happen this time around, particularly if the kind of sanctions that uh, Biden team uh, promises to introduce uh, will be actually introduced. Uh, Definitely, uh, if Putin is to invade, the timing is perfect because of the energy crunch in Europe. So most of the really biting sanctions like embargo or SWIFT are off the table because uh, Obama rule applies. You don't want to hurt uh, your own interests and the interests of your allies more than you want to kind of stick it back to the Russians. Uh, But here, I think that China will be very careful, particularly if some entities are not uh, limited in access to funding like the sanctions that have been designed uh, in the wake of 2014, um, annexation of Crimea and uh, shooting down of the Malaysian Boeing, but like will be actually introduced by OFAC into SDN lists. Uh, I can hardly imagine any Chinese policy bank or whatever touching those entities. Yeah, uh, I'm sure, and we'll come back to this. I know, Jim, you have a question. I was just going to say, you know, I think th- what's really interesting this time is that we do have this massive, you know, deepening, I think, of the relationship over the last seven years. We've gotten to this point. We have this statement that we agree some of it is just you know, recycling of old stuff, but, you know, it's it's something that really states in one, what is it, 5,000 something word statement, all the ways in which they're aligned on a bunch of issues. And then if there is an invasion, and then China does not come to the backing of Russia in the way that uh, some expect, or maybe Russia expects, 
what does that mean for the nature of the relationship uh, going forward? I think that's one of the you know fundamental questions we'll be watching. And I think China, for its part, really does not want Russia to invade. And we'd be perfectly happy if this was just a drawn out situation that distracts the U.S. and NATO uh, for an extended period of time. But Jim, go ahead. Well, um, I wanted to exactly explore that that issue a little bit about you know this this it's been in the press a couple of days, but if, is there really this idea that uh, Beijing would be embarrassed? Uh, that's the word being used that that it would embarrass Beijing if Putin went into uh, Ukraine. That this is something that um, uh, that uh, the Chinese might have been cautioning the Russians about not doing. Uh, that, that China has some things to lose if, uh, if in fact, Putin goes into, um, goes into Ukraine. So, I mean, you were alluding to that as well. Uh, both of you did. So could you unpack that a little bit for uh, our listeners? How, why would Beijing be embarrassed? What's behind that? Um, I'll start. So I think, um, you know, embarrassed is not exactly the word that I would use, um, but I think I understand what, um, you know, um, the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, and others are getting at when they talk about that in the sense that, you know, for China, um, there's a bunch of reasons why an invasion is not is not ideal. I mean, it puts China in a difficult position uh, because it has a fairly good relationship with Ukraine, uh, especially in terms of, you know, uh, export of, of military uh, uh, technology. Um, it has uh, this stance in terms of, you know, kind of being the prime defender of the UN Charter and of sovereignty and of non-interference in in the foreign affairs of other countries, or excuse me, the internal affairs of other countries. And so, um, you know, how do you reconcile this notion that uh, not only can Russia invade, but also even just this notion of, you know, you can't, you, you can tell a country like Ukraine that it's not allowed to join uh, a security alliance uh, like NATO, which, uh, unless you believe that somehow all of Ukraine's decisions are being um, you know, kind of uh, manufactured by by uh, by the United States or by by Europe, um, and I th- I think the the bigger issue around you know embarrassment is also this notion that is you know something that is really a fundamental difference between how the Chinese and the Russians approach you know their strategic interests, which is that China truly does still want to um, portray itself as as of of benefit uh, its rise benefiting the world, the community of common destiny. Um, this notion that uh, countries will benefit and the world will benefit and China means peace and stability and global economic growth. Right. And that's also something that in particular with Europe uh, is part of the um, part of the sales pitch, part of the narrative. Um, and for China, you know, the goal ultimately is to wedge, put a wedge between the transatlantic alliance and to maintain good relations with Europe uh, based largely upon uh, China's economic leverage um, with with European individual European countries. And so, you know, if China is backing you know, to go to the extreme situation where you have a Russian invasion and China does what Sasha and I have both had said we don't think that they'll necessarily do. But if China were to completely back Russia and to blunt the effect of any kind of sanctions or measures that are placed on China by by NATO and by the United States and by the West, um, that that would make you know China pretty much firmly aligned with Russia against against Europe um, and and make China look like it is condoning and supporting uh, this very destabilizing uh, violation of international law. Uh, and so in that case, in that sense, I think that's what um, people are getting at when they talk about embarrassment or at least putting China in a very difficult position. And that's why I say uh, I truly believe that China does not want uh, Russia to invade. But Sasha, I don't know. May have other thoughts. So you can feel free to add, but I want to kind of play devil's advocate for one second and just to see how you respond. Um, could we be wrong and could we see a more um, st- 
strong backing of Moscow, even if it was something on the higher end of the military spectrum. And I, I asked that, you know, in the document that they laid out, it's clear that they're aligned in their intent to push back against the United States. They believe in this multipolar world order. They want an end to U.S. hegemony and the destabilizing things that they purport the United States does that, you know, runs counter to their interests. So they're aligned on their desire to push back. We're already seeing in President Putin, a leader who's willing to take risks to push Russian objectives. He seems to calculate that now is the time to do that, whether it's because he believes there's weakness in the West or something else that's shaping his mindset that this is the opportune time to really take real risks in order to advance Russian objectives. Could we see something like that with China where like, yeah, we're we're going to lean in now and we're really going to stick it to the West and we're going to really, you know, we're willing to pursue a more assertive and aggressive posture in order to accelerate this world um, that we envision. I mean, is that, I don't, I don't, I just respond. I mean, I agree with what Dave said. That's analytically where I am, but I just want to, I wonder how do we think about that? What if there is a more asserted effort now by both these actors to really push their objectives and change the order in the way that that they that that is in their interests and that they envision. And if I could pile on that too, just to say, I, I would have thought that um, in some ways for China, should Russia go into Ukraine, uh, the Chinese could turn to Taiwan and say, "Take a good look at this. Take a good look at what's happening there." You know, I mean, they don't even have to do anything. They we know what they have been doing, but you would think that. Um, that, I mean, I understand, I think, and Dave, I agree too with your point about the so-called embarrassment, which I, I agree. I don't think that's the right word either, but, and the awkwardness for China on the one hand, but on the other hand, you would think uh, it's a cautionary tale for Taiwan uh, and that, that the Chinese would want to exploit in some way or another. First, I don't think that uh, Taiwan and Ukraine are related in any form. Uh, I think that if China is preparing a military option for Taiwan, which it looks increasingly likely, uh, they are very pragmatic and know that their uh, bullets need to be in the barrel and their knife needs to be sharpened. And that takes them another decade or more. That includes like comprehensive military buildup with strategic nuclear deterrent and like a lot of elements that need to come in place before they can credibly threaten an invasion that will have bearable cost and force Taiwan into negotiations on uh, Chinese conditions. The fact that Vladimir Putin might think that he has all of this element in place with regard to Ukraine doesn't affect Chinese timing at all, in my view. And that's, again, a theory uh, that this is the options uh, that they're pursuing with Taiwan. Wouldn't, wouldn't, no, I understand that. But wouldn't it be, though, at least, I mean, you're talking about a decade before they're militarily ready, and I understand that. But I would think that uh, to right now as an opportunity in terms of just, uh, you know, uh, psyops in some ways uh, vis-a-vis Taiwan, that the that the you know that the Chinese would use the Russian aggression into into Ukraine to, to make sure the Taiwanese got the point. Maybe it's not today. Maybe it's not tomorrow. But uh, as the Chinese continue to develop their military, that um, you know that 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 the Taiwanese will see that um, these things can happen in this world. Uh, and uh, and so you would think that they would want to take advantage of that if they can't stop it. 
then why not take advantage of that just to make sure uh, that Taipei got the point? Yeah, but what's the practical benefit? Taipei might think about different scenarios, but I think that uh, it will be much more attentive to the actual buildup of Chinese capabilities, the rhetorics coming out of Xi Jinping's mouth or of mouths of senior Politburo members rather than actions of Vladimir Putin and driving some uh, parallels. I think that material uh, situation on the ground has a much bigger impact than whatever Putin does. Uh, I agree with Dave that uh, China doesn't have a direct kind of stake or interest uh, in the invasion. And uh, even more so, I agree that we won't see a forceful uh, support for Russia's action, either rhetorical or very direct and overt way to circumvent the sanctions and help Russia to uh, sustain its economy despite Western pushback uh, for precisely the same reason that it wants to drive a wedge between Europe and uh, the U.S. wants to portray itself as a benevolent uh, party and also to maintain a part of the relationship with, with Ukraine that matters still. Uh, having said that, I believe that the Chinese clearly understand they have no leverage to influence Vladimir Putin's decision-making. If threat of sanctions, very real risks that he will face in the battlefield, uh, like your country had all the brilliant ideas about going to war with Iraq and Libya and Afghanistan. And that was indeed, and I'm not, it's not Russian kind of cynicism or dark sense of humor, that's indeed the most powerful military alliance in history ended up in disaster, right? Uh, why does Russia think that going into Ukraine will be an easy adventure, if that's the theory of the case? Uh, I'm positive, so military risks are definitely there, but the counter kind of uh, effect will be more American troops in Europe, much more European unity around Russia. Everybody who says that, oh, we should probably listen to Russians concern being marginalized and ostracized in European politics, more uh, thinking on part of Finland and Sweden to buy more hardware uh, by US producers, maybe join NATO. So all of this effects that ultimately diminish Russia's security. And yet he's still planning to do what he does. So what does Xi Jinping need to tell him to change his mind? I think that Chinese are very clear eye that they don't have this kind of silver magic word. So Russia is going to do what Russia is going to do. We don't have crystal ball. And if that happens, let's look at some upsides. And I think that the major upside, despite of what uh, people on the Biden team say, being a big government and have enough people to kind of play on all the chess boards, it's just not the way it's going to happen. We've seen that under Obama. We're very likely to see that again. If a major security crisis erupts in Europe, it will consume a lot of oxygen in any situation room and a lot of time by Jake Sullivan, Blinken, Torin Uland, Wendy Sherman, everybody else senior will need to spend a lot of time on this bloody issue um, and not on China, which is in a way beneficial. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I agree with everything Sasha just said. And I think that distraction point is really central to the way the Chinese leadership have seen the benefit of the, the partnership with, with Russia uh, for, for years now, especially as you know the U.S.-China 
uh, strategic rivalry has deepened. And as this administration came in, uh, focused on trying to, you know, take on the China challenge and just, you know, Russia keeps coming back, keeps coming back uh, and makes it, uh, frankly, impossible for this government to, to focus as much as they want on that China problem and on East Asia. Um, I would say um, I, I do agree generally. I think that the Taiwan parallel is uh, overdone. Um, I don't think that Chinese leaders are watching what happens in Ukraine and then necessarily think, well, this means that the United States is not going to come uh, to the defense of, of Taiwan uh, in a crisis. Um, I do think that, you know, we've seen, you know, just uh, recently there was news that that uh, the uh, President Tsai in Taiwan and the uh, kind of national security leadership there have been having meetings to 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 glean what kind of lessons they can take uh, from what's happening with Ukraine. Um, you know, I do think that there is going to be uh, certainly uh, Chinese leaders watching U.S. resolve and U.S. ability um, to kind of rally uh, allies uh, to deal with this kind of uh, authoritarian aggression. Um, and, but, you know, to say that that necessarily means that they think that they can take direct lessons for what's going to happen in a Taiwan contingency, I think I think that's I think that's probably not the right way to think about it. And then the other aspect to bring in here in terms of something more immediate, in addition to, you know, the, the limits and uh, on uh, time on uh, PLA capability and what we expect in terms of the timeline of, of China actually to be able to invade Taiwan is also in terms of something in the next you know, in the next year, whether it's Taiwan or, you know, South China Sea, something else in East Asia, is the fact that you have a very sensitive political year ahead uh, inside China um, with a focus on not just the, these Olympics, but of course, leading up to the 20th Party Congress uh, in the fall. And so there's going to be uh, limited uh, appetite uh, for any kind of uh, external um, instability or any kind of uh, aggression uh, on China's part that could go uh, poorly, unless they're put in some sort of extreme position where they they're you know feel like they have to respond in order to look sufficiently tough in defense of China's interests. So I know we're getting close to the end of time, Sasha. You mentioned though, um, you know, there is an upside for China, which is the distraction, and I think that's definitely right. Um, is a potential downside though that if Russia does something significant in Ukraine and China doesn't do much more than provide some kind of rhetorical support or, you know, and it doesn't really do a lot to bail Russia out and really to help Moscow to mitigate the effects of Western pressure. Does that serve to expose the limits of the relationship? I mean, I think as people who have watched the Russia-China relationship, you know, we've thought about how this could evolve over time and the implications it would create, you know, for us, we're thinking about the United States and Europe. But if, if, would, would this kind of show us the limits of what's possible here and then then in doing so kind of make this an inherently more manageable problem for the West? Uh, I think not. And the reasons for that uh, is that this emotional hype uh, in 2014 and 2015 and the mood swing of the Russian elite, their uh, overblown enthusiasm towards China right after Crimea annexation and Western sanctions uh, is already over. Uh, and you saw the law point about probably 2017, when you go to Moscow, you talk to senior officials and like everybody was like, oh, it turns out that China is not the great friend we hope for. I think that right now uh, it has returned to normalcy, being much better informed and much less emotional, saying, hey, after all, China is not out for charity. They are a great power that uh, pursues their own interests. And these interests don't necessarily coincide 
with our interests. And definitely in every situation, China seeks its own gain just like we do or the Americans do. So it's normal and uh, we shouldn't have these rosy expectations. So let's try to be realistic. Let's drive some lessons from uh, our expectations before and what was actually delivered. And I think that the large part of why Mr. Putin is less concerned about the sanctions is not that I have this great friend Xi Jinping who will bail me out, but uh, the meticulous work that the Russian Central Bank, the Minister of Finance, the industry have done to make Russia more sanctions-proof than it was before. Of course, uh, American sanctions will bite and will bite dearly. Uh, there is a big price to pay, and I don't think that the government is naive or we should... Uh, believe all the propaganda statements that, oh, we lived under sanctions for many years, so nothing could scare us. So, of course, that's just not the case. Uh, but I think that people are far better prepared and there is much more self-reliance than hope that China will come. Probably there are some critical elements like chips and semiconductors where hope for China is big. But again, there is all of the rationale for Russia and China to take this element of the relationship out of the spotlight, away from piercing eyes of U.S. intelligence community and outside observers like Sasha Gabuif in Moscow working for Carnegie and putting it somewhere else where it's worked on and nobody could see it. I think that's exactly what happened to the military uh, and arms uh, sales after CATSA was introduced, right? We don't know much of what kind of systems Russia now sells to China. We see some circumstantial evidence but there are no deals being announced. And sometimes something big drops out of Putin's mind, uh, mouth, like, uh, oh, by the way, we are helping them to build their early warning system. Or, oh, by the way, we are jointly developed weapons. Uh, did you know that? But uh, no analyst or no journalist working in Moscow would try to go and investigate of what that, uh, does this mean because of the uh, very active counterintelligence. And actually, a lot of stuff that's really significant, and that's, I think, a lot in your, uh, Andrea and uh, Dave's report, uh, of something that's really a direct challenge to the U.S., like Russia amplifying Chinese military capabilities or technological capabilities, that's happening somewhere else, not in the agreements being signed, not in the joint statements, but... Uh, and this, I think, will increase because that's ultimately what Russia can bring to the table uh, in order to kind of get more uh, visible Chinese material assistance. So it's sharing of sensitive technologies. It's allowing uh, Huawei to be present in Russian campuses. So that's something which is significant and which I think will fortify the relationship even further. Dave, yeah, just for you. I just want to add to, I mean, I, I, I agree completely with what Sasha just said. I think it's really interesting, you know, this kind of notion that, um, well, first of all, there's not going to be, you know, expectations dashed between the two countries and the two leaders necessarily if China does not come to Russia's aid in this in this moment of crisis in a way that some outside observers, including, you know, folks in the U.S. and, and Europe, might be expecting and then would say, well, that didn't happen. Therefore, it's not this, you know, great, uh, important alliance. I think, you know, having a more nuanced way of looking at what we're looking at when we, you know, observe what's happening between China and Russia in the sense that, you know, they may not be able to at the end of the day or willing to, you know, to uh, undertake significant costs to their own interests on behalf of each other. 
but in so many areas in which they're working together uh, that we've identified in in the military space, um, in the in the technological space, in the kind of norms and rights space, um, working more together in Asia, for instance, potentially, uh, you know, on on you know internet sovereignty issues, all of these things um, that have a significant impact on the U.S. and our allies' um, interests and values. That can all continue apace and get deeper and deeper without it being the case that they're going to come to each other's aid in a military conflict or they're going to you know, collaborate on really sensitive things like offensive cyber or something like that. So being able to hold in our heads this notion that this relationship absolutely is deepening and it's very significant, but that it's not going to go in some of these other directions, um, you know, I think that's really the, the important thing to understand that this statement is significant, but it's not necessarily going to mean that we're heading into this uh, world where they're going to back each other up uh, in, in, for instance, this kind of a conflict over Ukraine. Those are great words to end on, both of you. Those were really um, thoughtful observations that I think um, are spot on and, and should continue to shape. This is an issue yeah, that's not going away after the Ukraine crisis. Uh, and if anything, Sasha, like you're saying, more of it's going to be taking place um, in ways that are more, uh, more difficult to observe. And Dave, I, I really like your point about you know, they might not be willing to put in to incur costs to back each other up, but there are so many parts of their relationship where they can cooperate that are costless to both of them just because of the sheer alignment of their positions that we're, it's going to continue kind of regardless of what happens here in Ukraine. Those are really, I think, very uh, useful points. Jim, anything from you? No, just that was very helpful. Thank you so much. I'm particularly glad we got at this embarrassed, uh, this embarrassing uh, Beijing point because that's been quite in quite a bit of the press over the past couple of days. And I, that was very helpful uh, how you guys spoke about it. So thank you. Yeah. So this is an issue that's here to stay too. I mean, again, hopefully we can have you both back and kind of make sense of the trajectory of the relationship moving forward. Um, Cause you know, yeah, continue to be an important one for the United States and Europe um, and, and really globally. So thanks to both of you for your expert and all of your work on these issues and looking forward to continuing the conversation.